You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Hey, hey, Jess O'Reilly here, your friendly neighborhood sexologist. And I'm here with psychotherapist Todd Barretts. You're in private practice in New York City. You specialize in relationships and sex. And I found you through your Instagram page. So your Instagram page is your diagnonsense. And and it's full of gems. I, I really admire people who are able to succinctly convey these really meaningful messages with takeaways in such a short amount of text. There's another therapist based in Austin, Texas, who's able to do the same Adam Maurer from Moon Tower Counseling. And so I follow the both of you. So excited to talk to you because I'm always screen grabbing your stuff saying, oh man, I need to ask him about this. So happy to have you here. You just came back from Mexico City. I did. I'm happy to be here too. Um, We've been DMing here and there. um, And it's nice to finally meet you to be here with you to chat about this stuff. So I'm super excited. But yes, just back from Mexico City. Great city. Great time. Um, What was the highlight? The highlight uh, was definitely the food. Um, the food, like literally everything I ate was so, so fucking good. Um, the pyramids were also super cool too. Um, did you go when you, have you been? No, I've been to the pyramids along the Mayan, yeah. but it's a, it's an hour trek outside the city. Yeah, it's an hour. It wasn't that bad though. It went by pretty quick, um, especially because if you're driving around an area that you don't know, it's like, it's kind of nice to look at everything. Um the tour was kind of a bit long. Like, so I'm the type of person that's like, okay, I've seen it. Like, I'm done. Um, so it was a little bit longer, but it was still super cool. So it was the other highlight. Well, I think we're on the same page if the food was your highlight. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the food for in Mexico sure. City is... It's so good. It is so good. And you live yeah. in New York City. You live right yeah. down here in the meatpacking. So you've mm-hmm. got everything at your fingertips and you still love Mexico City. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the food in New York is great, too. Um, but it's also, like, five times as expensive. Um and, uh, I think I had so, a, a $6 croissant this morning. Yeah, it's crazy. Which is like eight fifty Canadian. It's crazy. It's just everything's so expensive everywhere. Yeah. Toronto's expensive too. Toronto is, but at least we, you know, for, as an American coming in, you've got currently like a 33% bump mm. on the dollar. So at least sure. if a croissant's three bucks, it's only like two fifty. I'm, I'm, don't get me on my math, okay? But you know. Yeah, I'm you know, like trying to do numbers, not my thing. <laughs> but what is your thing is giving practical advice around relationships that is yes. grounded in data, research-based, psychologically sound. And you recently posted about avoidance. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a bit about what we do in our lives and specifically in relationships and around sex to practice avoidance, what the costs of this avoidance are, and what we can do to break this habit. So what do you mean when you say avoidance doesn't work? Well, first, what I want to say is that, you know, nothing doesn't work. I don't know if that's proper (laughs) grammar, but nothing doesn't work all the time. So avoidance isn't necessarily bad. Um, You know, it's not a bad thing. If you want to avoid something once in a while, you know, go to town. Um, But it's just, you know, when we do something, a behavior, um, a thought, a feeling that becomes pervasive um, and persistent and something that's really um, disruptive to our relationships, our life, our day-to-day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's when you kind of want to stop and say, okay, well, what's going on? And that's when I would say avoidance doesn't work. Because I think especially now it's so popular that we're policing so much of our day-to-day experience that we could say this is bad, this is bad, that's a red flag, this is a red, you know, it's 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 out of control. So I think it's just helpful to first start there and just to say that um, avoidance isn't 
you know, this bad thing that we should never do. Um, sometimes it's an asset. Sometimes it's the most helpful thing you can do, like with body esteem or with some uh, similar things where it is helpful to actually avoid some negative thoughts if possible. But um, when I'm ta- what I'm talking about is more so relational sexual avoidance that ends up creating disconnection, anxiety, so stuff like that. Um, so, you know, if avoiding is not impacting your life and it's helping you in some way, um, you know, Think about it. Take some time to reflect if it's if it's helping or hurting. Um, but so I think what we're about to talk about is the type of avoidance that is particularly um, not helpful. So what do people avoid in relationships? Is it conversations? Is it vulnerability? Is it you know talking about sex? What are you seeing in your practice? Um, well, I think everybody has their own unique story with avoidance. Um, and what we're really talking about is relational conflict, I think. Um, relational sexual conflict, negotiating, uh, differences, um, compatibility, etc. And um, what I see most of the time is that people, they really have a hard time being different in whatever way we're talking about, whether it's sexual or even like I want salmon tonight and not chicken, or um, really a difficult time experiencing life in a different way from their partner, um, and either feeling more alone or light or shameful because of it, um, and then having a really difficult time addressing some of those differences and negotiating them. Um, and so the result then is some kind of paralysis, um, and so then people just get stuck. Um, and you know, I'm talking about myself here as well. Um, You know, it's a challenge negotiating these differences. And I think avoidance is often people's first stop um, along the um, negotiation or conflict resolution. I don't even like using words like conflict resolution. Uh, It's so technical. And it Um, sounds like, you know, in grade six, where there was like the marshal who took the conflict resolution course. I remember this, this young girl I went to school with, she became a conflict resolver. And she took a course and oh my goodness, she walked through the schoolyard in a construction vest oh my God. fluorescent with a big x on it can you imagine <laughs> like oh yeah we're gonna go to her to help yeah. us no no she just got beat yeah, up please solve my issues <laughs> so yeah. people are avoiding relational conflict yeah. why do we avoid conflict in relationships well everybody has their again their different reasons and their stories for it um and i don't know if there's like a universal reason but most of what i see Um, is some kind of fear. People are anxious um, about eliciting or having to confront or manage or deal whatever negative, emotional, relational, sexual, whatever experience. Um, And so avoidance is there to preserve, protect, calm, soothe us. Um, You know, if we kind of put it to the side, it can at times, as I was saying before, be helpful. Um, But so I think that's, you know, part of the reason why people do it in terms of just like at the surface, this is why one engages in the behavior. But I think, you know, if we want to kind of develop meaning and around the story about that, that's a different story um, in terms of, you know, what um, about this person or couple's um, history and their own earlier relationships, their family history, their political history, their identities, blah, 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 has contributed to the way that they expect out of relationships of their partners and themselves. Um, and that's the specific story that I think is particularly challenging for folks. So they might be afraid of conflict because they think conflict is always going to escalate into mm. something toxic. They might be afraid of conflict because they never saw healthy conflict mm-hmm. or they saw unhealthy conflict. Uh, and not that every conflict has to be healthy at all times. Mm-hmm. Like, listen, we can have all the tools 
to con- to engage in conflict effectively. And it's not like you and I use them all the time. No. Right? We're just emotional human yeah. beings. I mean, I, I, I talk about this often. I fly off the handle sometimes. And mm. it's, it's a learned behavior that I have to be aware of. And I'm more and more aware of it. But it still happens. So you might avoid conflict, you know, for other reasons. You might think that if we engage in conflict, they're going to leave me. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. If I piss yeah. them off. Or I like where you're getting with the fear and anxiety. I'm afraid that if I engage in conflict, I'm going to need to dig a little deeper and mm-hmm. admit to what I'm feeling. Right now I'm feeling angry, but that anger could be underscored by anxiety. It could be underscored by insecurity, by mm-hmm. fear of abandonment. So as a therapist, you can help people get to this. For folks listening, how can they get to these deeper feelings on their own if they see that they are avoiding conflict? Well, um, I'm a therapist, so I'm biased. <laughs> so I would say, you know, go to a therapist yes. is like my answer to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, it's it's much more complex. It's not so simplistic. Um, so I think the first step is to just really recognize that you're actually avoiding and what it is that you're avoiding. Um, you know, I'm avoiding having the conversation with my partner. Um, you know, we haven't had sex in six months. And, you know, I'm really I'm afraid to bring it up, etc. Um, and I, it's a cha- I think that even just that can be really challenging for folks who... It's, yeah, it's easier to be angry. Yeah, angry or anxious or even just not even acknowledging it. Like, you know, I went to a party and I had a panic attack, but I have no idea why. Meanwhile, you know, there's a huge disconnect in the relationship and they're not having sex or they're not being touched or cuddled or kissed or whatever in which ways that they want to be. Um, but they're not able to connect the anxiety that they feel or the paralysis or whatever the emotional experience is to... Um, the, the specific avoidance or disconnection that they are engaging in, which I think is important to know is that, you know, I think avoidance is in part a way to disconnect, um, which is also part of the story, um, is that it can be really hard for us to reveal ourselves and to connect when we're experiencing some kind of disconnect. And so the avoidance is a further way of disconnecting. And so if you're trying to get a little bit deeper on your own, are there, are there first you're going to acknowledge that you're avoiding, and then what? What questions can you ask yourself? Um, well, so uh, I always I, I always go back to thinking about earlier experiences and the role that avoidance or anxiety or safety, all of those words play or played throughout our lives. Um, you know, I, I exist in a very specific bubble where I'm constantly thinking about and engaging with um, bringing the past to the present and creating parallels and more meaning about it in order to move forward and live in the present. Um, but, you know, and that's both in my own life and in my practice work. Um, but, you know, what I've become acutely aware of is the longer that I practice is that, you know, not everybody has been in therapy and been learning how to unpack these things. And so, so many people don't spend any time um, connecting their early attachment experiences, their early family experiences, the oppression that they've faced based on their gender or sexual orientation or whatever it might be um, to the way in which they're experiencing, experiencing their relationships today. So that's where I would direct people. Um, you know, what does this bring up for me? What does this remind innocent of what can I connect this to um, etc and that's why I say go to a therapist because sometimes it can be hard to see things um, because I don't know who I think I don't know who it was describing this but it's like the street light effect when you're looking for your keys um, only where there's light um, when they could be it could be anywhere and so there's a lot of darkness and things that we are not aware of that specifically avoidance does protect us from acknowledging um, that it can be really helpful to have somebody else say oh did you look over there it's a little bit dark but there might be something particularly interesting and helpful for you to think about um, so again um, I would really encourage folks to reflect 
um, reflect about their earlier experiences, their family, et cetera, et cetera, what it was like for them to negotiate conflict, um, what it was like for them to feel safe and what they had to do to feel safe or what they had to do to feel love. I mean, I could go on and on with this shit. I think um, those are but, all great questions to consider even yeah. before you go to a therapist. Like oh, yeah. You could, I like to write things down. Yeah. So I would probably write down what I'm feeling and mm-hmm. take it into the therapist's office and yeah. say, I've started with this. Uh-huh. This oh, is the love, conversation. I would love it. I love it when my clients come in and they're like, I have a list. And I'm like, this is great. <laughs> Just great. Right. Because As then, opposed to, I don't, I, nothing's really on my Right. Nothing's like, on my mind. Yeah. I wish nothing was on my mind. There are 92 tabs right? open in this mind Seriously. right now. And so if we if we start with those questions and you're asking yourself, you know, what's coming up, you might consider when I think of the most intense conflict I've ever experienced or observed, what was it? What did it look like? How did I feel? Mm-hmm. And then do you get at the fear? So if you're avoiding conflict in your relationship, I, I think of the question, you know, what is my greatest fear? What is the worst case scenario? that I'm maybe not acknowledging. Because I, mm. I, you know, I deal with fear and anxiety, and uh, you mentioned paralysis. Mm-hmm. So I, I deal with this in business. Being online, of course, you know, people aren't always happy with what I have to say. Um, there are you know, some folks who kind of follow me around from platform to platform, not being, um, you know, not being supportive, but somehow still following, and wanting to mm. kind of you know, tear down. Yep. And so every time I go to post, specifically on Facebook, not on Instagram, because I feel like I'm more myself on Instagram, but on Facebook, because it's been there so long, my profile. And I think I have a lot of followers who come from, you know, some TV shows I used to do. And so we don't share the same values. We share some of the same values, but I'm fearful to post. I'm fearful to post because I'm afraid people are going to try and tear me down or engage in conflict. And I don't always have the energy for conflict. And so I avoid posting, Hmm. right? And so I'm avoiding putting stuff out there that I think is really important, that is important to my business, but also just important, you know, messaging. I avoid it out of fear of having to engage in conflict. Now, what I've learned is that I actually don't have to engage, mm-hmm. right? Because these are not my people. Nope. If somebody wants to fight with me, I have the option to to block and people will say, oh, well, you know, you should engage with different perspectives. But you know what? I expend a lot of emotional energy in my yep. life. Mm-hmm. I don't have to engage. Now, if I were to avoid emotional engagement in my relationships, with my partner, with my parents, with the people who are closest to me, then I think I need to take a look in the mirror. But I can't engage with 50,000 people. No. Right? I, and it is. that, And that's one of the problems with, with Instagram, right? Or Facebook is with being in the public eye is in some ways, it's a bit of a one-way conversation, right? A one-way mm-hmm. lecture. And I don't want it to be that. I do want to engage. But the volume of it makes it really challenging. Yeah, well, I mean, you bring up a helpful point, which is that this is an example of when it's not helpful. I mean, when it is helpful to avoid, you don't need to engage with all of these people. And in fact, you know, that's not what you're trying to do anyway. Um, But uh, yeah, I'm sorry that happens. I mean, it happens to me sometimes, too. Um, And it's just it's such a mindfuck, because it's interesting how much you know, it can impact you, you know, and you don't even know the person and you're just like, what the fuck are they talking about? Like, I don't fucking understand, you know, and, and immediately like I go, you know, I go to the place which I imagine that you're describing as well. And then you have to kind of kind of say to yourself, okay, done. Like, that's it. Like, right. that's my allotment for what the fuck. And right. And I don't want to leave it on my wall when someone's written something either offensive yeah. or hurtful. But I also don't, I don't want to leave it there because I think that sends the message, for example, that it's okay to talk mm-hmm. to me that way. So I'll give you an example. Use you as a therapist. So the yeah. other day I posted a picture and it's a picture of me angry because I was talking about, the message was about conflict in relationships. Mm-hmm. And a couple of people, one person in particular wrote something along the lines of, I'm really turned on by this photo. Um, 
and so you like you really really turn me on and I love that you're not wearing a lot of makeup I don't know why women think that they should wear so much makeup when men don't even like it so there's all these layers of Ugh. first of all you don't have a right to tell me that you're no. turned on by me yeah. you have a right to be turned on but to me that feels very sexualizing very objectifying yeah. it certainly wasn't a sexy photo and even if it was a sexy photo that doesn't mean that you get to engage sexually with me no. right you can be turned on all you want like if, if someone's in your spank bank that's your business mm-hmm. but telling them is an act of it's, it's sexual engagement. It's sexual expression that I'm not consenting to. Then the second piece is like I give a shit about whether I wear too much makeup or not enough makeup. And, and th- you know, I think it's so interesting, like hetero folks, like women think men want you to wear more makeup. I'm like, dude, I don't even like men, right? I'm not even like, I can't even tell you. I have a, a male partner that I really am attracted to, but it doesn't happen for me often. Like, it's just not something I'm into. But you believe Mm. that I must put on my makeup so that you will like my eyebrows or you will like my, this is like a straight men thing. Anyhow, I thought of engaging because I think it becomes a teachable moment. And then, you know what? I had a lot going on in my life this week with my family and some really emotionally taxing conversations and transitions I was going through. And I said, you know what? I can't engage with this guy. It's a learning opportunity, but I am not responsible for everybody's learning. And I just deleted the comment. Right. And I, I think that, you know, there's pressure to as a supposed expert. Right. And of course, I'm not an expert in everything. and I'm certainly not, uh, you know, doing everything right. But I just deleted it. And I thought, oh, I hope that wasn't a waste. I screen grabbed it. Right. And I don't know if that person is listening, but I'll tell you. And I think the listeners of the podcast, you know, often approach this with a little more sophistication than maybe just everyone who's on Instagram. But it's not OK for you to tell me that I turn you on or make you weak in the knees. It's not how I want to be spoken to. Mm, no, I'd imagine that was probably disturbing for you. I mean, when you're sexualized at a time by someone who's a stranger, at a time when you're not worried and when you haven't really consented to it and they're and are doing it on a public platform, um, you know, I'd imagine that stirs up a whole bunch of shit, as mean as it seems like it did. Um, I'm sorry that, that he did that. That sounds shitty. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And there's the thing, you know, you're showing support. I told my partner right away, he shows support. And I, I think I'm so lucky because I do get some of this, you know, little bits of harassment. And I think some people wouldn't see it as harassment because he's not saying nice tits, baby. Or mm. he's not saying, I want to put something inside of you, baby. But the nuance of it almost makes it worse because not everybody sees it as harassment, but I experience it as harassment. And so when people don't view it the way you view it, it can even in small ways, invalidate your feelings or make you question whether your feelings are valid. But what I have to say is I'm so lucky because I have, I do have such a supportive community, my inner community, you know, the people who are closest to me, mm. but also just externally, I'm really lucky with, with podcast listeners, with social media followers, how supportive they are. And so those folks who, you know, say these things are in the minority. And I also know that if I posted something, a whole bunch of folks would stand up for me. And that's kind of mm. cool. Yeah. Right now, I don't want that because I don't think that it would be useful to this person. I think they would just feel attacked. And I, I don't think I have a feeling, you know, some people are really open to hearing, hey, that didn't feel good for me. And other people are going to be like, hey, bitch, you're stuck up. It's a compliment. Right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's definitely problematic and it's definitely um, harassment um, when people are commenting on your body and the way that you look. Um, and this is something that, you know, particularly uh, a lot of women, cis women deal with. Um, or, or I mean anybody, but specifically women, um, in terms of um, people just having comments about their bodies, um, and it feels awful. 
It feels awful. Yeah, it's it's interesting because, you know, somebody can say you're beautiful and it can feel good. And someone can say beautiful and it doesn't feel good. Right. And that's a really complicated... Well, there's a level of appropriateness, right? Um, you know, when you're posting information about conflict and relationships and someone's saying you look really hot, um, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily appropriate. Um, and, you know, I think people just need to be more sensitive to the words that they use when they're commenting on people's bodies and appearances, um, particularly women and, um, and anybody, but in general, you know, to really keep some of those um, thoughts private. As you were saying, you know, you know, it's one thing to think it, and it's another thing to share it on a public platform. Um, you and, know, and really think about how what the outcome is, right? So people can say I intended it as a compliment, but if it's not received as a compliment, that it's not, then it's not a compliment. I see the measure of a compliment being the outcome. Right. Did it feel good for the receiver? Because great, it felt good for you, but it's not my job to make you feel good. No. And I, again, I don't, I, I worry that people will be like, oh, I've written on Jessica's post before saying you're beautiful and and I, I I receive many of those as compliments it's just the way this guy spoke to me about how well, the makeup thing and like uh, guys versus girls and stereotypes you know yeah and how it turns just like, you on right yeah, turn no, you on it's kind of like you make you. my dick hard and that's not something I ever want to hear there's a difference hear. between intention and impact and that's what you're talking about is that it doesn't I mean great he had an intention what that was who knows what because you don't know him but the impact was was not helpful it was hurtful yeah and the makeup thing of course like it's so obnoxious well it's also criticizing my other photos in which he perceives me as wearing more makeup mm. right and then other people wrote like oh you look so nice natural uh or like little makeup or whatever they said and they said it in kind of a nice way and it's mm. so and then they, there's the other piece where i have relationships with folks online mm -hmm. and i may not know them in person like you and i are meeting for the first time mm -hmm. but there is a context of if we've engaged in many ways or in some ways in the past i'm going to receive a message differently than if all you ever write is you look hot right? oh is this the same person that just repeatedly does it i actually don't remember um and and again i know that it's difficult because people are thinking what we can't even pay a compliment and I think that, as you said, it's just about reflecting a little bit more slowly, perhaps, mm. before we hit send. I've thought about that before. I've thought about, you know, when a, a friend or somebody that I don't, I don't know as well looks fire on Instagram and I'm like, whoa, you look so good. But I do think about, okay, let me also read the post. Because if this person's saying something um, really important to them, maybe they don't really want to compliment on the way they look. And of course, people are like, well, why do you post pictures of yourself? Well, the reality is, it gains traction, right? Um, sometimes I don't have an appropriate photo. Photos aren't all in public domain. You can't just grab a random photo off of Google and put it up. Uh, and also I'm sort of feeling like I, I'm making excuses, right? So there's a piece of me that worries, you know, that I'm offending people, right? That I'm saying, hey, don't ever say you're beautiful. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying just think about it a little bit. Right? Yeah, Before for sure. I mean, it's one thing to, as you were saying, to say someone's, I think what we're talking about is different things. You say someone's beautiful, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then if you start to bring into the way that they put themselves together, the clothes that they're wearing, the makeup that they're wearing or not, the way that their hair is, blah, 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 blah. Um, and then putting it under the guise of, you know, gender stereotypes um, and specifying that, that's just different. Um, yeah. and, and race comes into play mm, as well, yeah. right? When you think about how you know, we're sexualized for features that are seen as racialized. Mm -hmm. So I, t I took this conversation to me and you're listening like a therapist. I no, know. it's okay. I mean, it's it's super important because this is where we are and this is what's happening. And, you know, I, I think that it, 
this is it's happening and uh, it's important to talk about because i don't think people realize sometimes um and this guy probably doesn't realize it either which isn't to say that you know it's okay it's not um but it's just to say that this type of a conversation needs to be had more um so people can develop a better awareness about how to engage uh, when they do want to reach out if they are wanting to elicit a connection or some sort of uh, affirmation because that's not affirming for you right and it's not accomplishing anything. And, and it all comes back to for me that I was avoiding like that day because of what had happened in my household what had happened with a family member a big transition we were experiencing I didn't feel like saying to him hey this doesn't feel good for me when you say that I turn you on and the language was a little harsher than that I can't remember what it was right now um, but maybe on another day I might have engaged and said hey, you know, I appreciate your support, I appreciate you following, and I want to let you know that when you tell me that you're turned on by me, it makes me uncomfortable. And leave that out there to let other people know mm-hmm. as well. And so this comes back to when avoidance can actually be helpful because mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm avoiding, I'm deleting, I don't yeah, have to no, deal with this no. right now. And so if we try and determine when to use avoidance in a functional way and mm-hmm. a normative way and when it becomes problematic, how do we draw that line? Um, well, kind of like what I was saying before, just in terms of if you notice that it becomes something that's pervasive, that's actually impacting your day to day, um, the avoidance, not the interaction. So not that this guy, not that he's impacting you because he did, but more so like if you were doing this and you couldn't stop thinking about what you wish you could have said, blah, 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 or maybe not even that. I take it back. Um, anyway, if it becomes, per- let me go back, <laughs> rewind. If it becomes pervasive and it starts, you know, creating some kind of anxiety, um, you know, then I think it's helpful to, to think about, particularly within the context of relationships that have an impact on your life. Maybe not necessarily with a stranger. You know, I think that that's just kind of like, you know, should you want to engage, engage, should you not, don't. Um, but as you're saying, generally, when there are important things going on in our lives, we're not going to engage with things that aren't as um, important to us. Oh, of course, we have to filter. Yeah. And so where do I begin? If you're avoiding conflict in relationship, or you're avoiding a difficult conversation, how do you break this habit of avoidance? Well, it's kind of like what I was saying before, just, you know, in pausing and reflecting and trying to create meaning and more of a connection to the story, to your own personal story, as opposed to, I need to have this conversation or do this one thing because X, Y, Z, and just kind of staying in this um, uh, obsessive place where it becomes an obsessive crisis. Um, And so the focus then not being on the specific content of the obsessive place, but more so what that means in the context of your entire life. Uh, So yeah, developing awareness, pausing awareness, uh, create connection to meaning a story um, within your specific life and not of just yesterday and not of just tomorrow, Um, you know, your entire life, because we bring all ages with us everywhere we go. Um, And, you know, then taking tiny, teeny, tiny steps as whatever feels the safest to deal with it. Do you find that, do you find that because we have more ways to communicate today that people can break these cycles a little bit more easily like I was thinking for example you'll always hear therapists say things like oh don't resolve conflict over text because it lacks tone and nuance and eye contact and body language etc but what if you are more comfortable writing something down opening a a difficult conversation uh, online with a mm. partner is that something that mm. you're seeing helps at all no <laughs> never um i mean i wouldn't say never um but what i would say is what i think what you were saying is you know because i think a lot of people and myself included like i could write 
my conflicts out in a second. Um, but as soon as I go to verbalize it, as soon as it becomes a relational activity, I can forget it. I can forget, uh, lose the words I wanted to say, convey the meaning, blah, blah, blah. So I do think that writing is an incredibly helpful thing to do, specifically when it comes to avoidance of anything. Um, you know, so to, and this is, I make, if any of my clients will know that I make them write a lot of letters. Um, to their mother, to their father, to themselves, to themselves at 10, 12, their partner, this, you know, et cetera. Um, and so I would say that if it is pervasive and it's frustrating and you really do want to push through the avoidance after you've developed an awareness and you have some meaning and you feel confident in that meaning, uh, to then write a letter to the person or to yourself or whatever, uh, addressing what it is that you're avoiding and what it is that you particularly want to say. And you can give it to the person um, face-to-face or not face-to-face. Um, but I think text, it, it, it opens, it's a conversation. Um, you can't just, you know, versus a letter, which is a letter. I'm trying to find the right words, but, uh, you know, it's a letter. It's not necessarily like you're waiting for someone to write you a letter back unless that's the agreement you want to, um, agree to. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's helpful to resolve conflicts over text unless it's something that you and your partner have become really skilled at. I think that's a challenge is that not everybody is particularly skilled, um, at not, at, um, uh, sticking to their own story and not becoming defensive and not becoming blaming and not interpreting what your partner is saying as, uh, whatever it is that they may or may not be saying. So, you know, if you're really skilled at some of that communication, then sure, you know, do it, um, but it's rare that I like, we'll see a couple and they'll be like, we had the best conflict resolution to conflict or management of conflict by a text. I'm like, I've never heard it. Um, but uh, everybody's having conflict through text. So I don't want to say it's a bad thing. It would just say, you know, write a letter maybe instead and then sit and say, read this letter and sit with each other and it's um, slower. use it as a jumping off ground. Yeah. Right. A letter is slower. You're not, it's not back and forth and back and forth and back yeah. and forth. You don't see the three little dots. No. You don't Ugh. even know that they're writing that letter. Now I have, I have found that I've been able to express myself over text and we have resolved conflict over text. Yeah. And I know that we're in the minority. You are though. You're a therapist. Y- yeah. <laughs> like this is what you do. And I um, think because we spend so much time apart yeah. that we text a lot. Right. But I know that it doesn't work for most people. Yeah. And I think that's a, another important message here is that, you know what, if you're the one in a hundred or one in a thousand and you know it works for you, yeah. then use it. Go to town. Right. For sure. Now you mentioned defensiveness. Do you have any strategies for dealing with your own defensiveness? If you find you become defensive, if anyone's ever told you that you're defensive, how do we break that down? Um, that's a tough one. I think if, you know, it's kind of, I mean, I'm, I probably give the same process for everything. But I mean, if you don't, if you don't realize that you're being defensive, you can't really ch- change that or challenge it. Um, and that's actually one of the hardest things, especially when I'm seeing a couple and they're having a conflict on my couch and... Um, you know, I stop them and I'm like, okay, if you could rewind and do this again, you know, how would you say it? And it's in, in the, the revision is still a defensive or blamey place. Um, so yeah, the, so the first is become aware. Can you become aware of when you are blaming? Cause I think that's the other end of defensiveness. Um, and when, uh, yeah, when you're blaming, when you're becoming defensive, et cetera. And that's kind of the hardest part. Um, is just saying, okay, I'm becoming defensive now. Well, I think that we just need to give ourselves permission to be imperfect, right. to be defensive, to, as, as I said before, admit when you're being irrational. I'm irrational off, off, often. Oh, yeah. I said awful. Yeah. I'm irrational often because I'm emotional, because I'm human, because yeah. 
I'm our op- lives are irrational. I mean, think about yeah. the shit we do every day. It's crazy. Right. And I um, you know, I struggle sometimes just with the intensity of life. So I love this high intensity life. I love flying around. I love being in a new city every day. I love working with new people every mm. day. And then I need a big exhale. Mm-hmm. And if I don't take that exhale, I notice I become really irritable. Little things frustrate me. And I noticed the other day I got mad at a piece of paper towel. Mm, I was trying, yeah, I was trying to take some a piece of hair off the floor in the bathroom, and the paper towel wasn't picking it up. I'm like, "What the fuck?" And then my partner walked in, and I didn't know he was home. And I was like, "Oh, well, that was embarrassing." I just mm-hmm. swore at a paper towel, and I was able to laugh at him. Be say, mm-hmm. "Okay, you're being ridiculous. This hair on the ground is going to be okay, right? <laughs> Even if it doesn't pick up the hair, it's not the paper towel's fault. You will survive if there's hair on your uh, a hair on your bathroom floor, and you need a break." You need to not talk to people. You need to not do work. You need to not post on social. You need a break because you've been going so hard. So sometimes, you know, being irrational helps me to recognize where I need to be. And it doesn't mean that immediately I recognize my own irrational behavior. Sometimes it takes hours, days, even weeks. And yeah. I'm and I'm just not perfect. So well, I yeah. think it's also, though, it's kind of helpful to give yourself permission. I mean... We could say irrational, but like to just be human, or emotional. Um, that you know, sometimes it just you, what you you have to scream at the paper towel. You know, yeah. sometimes that just needs to happen. And the important part is what you're saying you did is what you laughed at your own shit. Yeah. Um, is that you were angry and then it dissipated? Maybe you were still angry, but you were just able to be able, uh, able to laugh at your own shit, which is really important. And it um, took me a while. Have that. It really took me a while. I've had kind of a week because mm-hmm. of all this other stuff going on. And I always think, of course, okay, so what would a therapist say? <laughs> right? They'd say you're going through this transition. Yeah. you've been on the road well, I want to know what's going on that's what the therapist would say <laughs> exactly. tell me what's going on exactly and I would and I would um I, I actually would tell you all right now but out of respect for the other people who are involved yes. I'm not going to but I wish I could because even you know talking on this podcast and talking to someone like you is is cathartic you know it's a it's a therapeutic process even though it's not mm-hmm. therapy itself it's and a relational connection which is which feels nice it does it does yeah. and I think specifically folks who are listening on the podcast just send so much support right mm. even if even if they're not messaging me all the time i know that even if not every episode appeals even if not every piece of insight or advice is relevant i know that you know folks are hopefully taking some value mm-hmm. and when we think about you know getting defensive defensive to go back to it i often say that you know if let's flip the script if your partner is defensive one way to deal with that defensiveness is to own your own shit first. So if you don't want to engage in a topic, like let's say we haven't had sex in six months, and I come to you and say I want to talk about it, and you get defensive or you withdraw, Mm -hmm. I find that the most disarming thing I can do is say, yeah, so I know this is happening, this is how I'm feeling, and I also recognize that this is my role in it, right? Like, So if I can own the fact that I share responsibility for this, it's really disarming, because oftentimes we're defensive because we feel like it's all our fault, Mm -hmm. right? And our partner's coming up to us oftentimes frustrated, and so we're not effective communicators when we're frustrated, right? Generally speaking, I mean, I'm not. So if I can come at it and say, here's the role I play, here's what I I know I've been doing, I wish I had done this differently, I was thinking maybe I could do this differently in the future, all of a sudden it can disarm a person to be like, oh, you're not perfect? Okay, I get that I'm not perfect too. Maybe there's something I could do differently, right? Mm. And be a little bit open. And so that's one way, you know, we can, I think, help to support our partner in being less defensive. And then the second piece is just really giving ourselves permission to feel jealous, to feel insecure, to feel afraid. And I love your formula. So you're talking with all of these difficult feelings or behaviors. First, you recognize it. 
And that can take a little bit of work mm -hmm. and permission. And then you relate it to your own story, your yep. own life. And you kind of look at, it doesn't mean you have to explain every story from your childhood, but maybe some of the really standout ones um, from childhood, from early relationships, from observations. And then, you know, I wonder if you can think about like, what is my ultimate fear here? Mm -hmm. Like, what is, what is, what, what am I avoiding? Like, what am I so afraid of experiencing? And then maybe rather than figuring out how to overcome that, you could even just think about, well, what's the outcome I want? Like, what do I wish would happen? And then you can fill in the blanks in between. And of course, you're going to get more out of this if you have a therapist yep. to guide you along the way. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sure that part of your practice is training people to, to be their own therapists. Yeah. Right. That's to the give idea. them the skills so that this process is not just, you know, not necessarily linear because it goes in all directions, but it becomes a natural part of the way you think and behave. Totally. Right. Like in cognitive behavioral therapy, we do that where I've mm. got an anxiety. Here is what I'm afraid of. Here's the evidence for it. Here's the evidence against it. Here's a more realistic thought. So the first time you do a worksheet, for example, it feels really awkward, right? You can't figure mm. out what the evidence is, what the evidence against is. But when you do this 10, 20, 30 times, all of a sudden it becomes ingrained in the way you function. And generally speaking, your anxiety is... It just, it assuages itself. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yeah. And I'm glad you said 10, 20, 30. Yeah. Uh, because it's really a learning process. You can't do it five times and then just be, you know, an expert. Um, and I'm not sure that's even a healthy aspiration. Um, so, yes, you know, you have to do it over and over and over and over and over and over. And, and be over. okay with screwing up. Yeah. Right? Like, so you might, you know, get really good at overcoming a specific anxiety, whether it's mm -hmm. engaging in conflict or having sex with the lights on or, you know, talking about money. Money is a trigger a for a lot one. of people. And it, it's been a, an issue in our relationship over the years. You know, I wish Brandon was here to talk to you, but we've been together almost 19 years, I think. Mm. And now the way we talk about it is so different than 5, 10, 15 mm. years ago. And that's only through practice and that's only through screwing up and that's only from through pissing each other off and feeling insecure at times and, mm -hmm. and these different struggles. And so if you avoid though, that is the number one reinforcer for anxiety. Right. Right. So the cost of always avoiding mm -hmm. is that the fear becomes stronger. Right. And, and that's the opposite. I think it feels counterintuitive. You think like, if I'm afraid of this, I shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So how do we reframe if you have a fear or anxiety or a worry about something? How do we convince ourselves that engaging with it in some way is going to help to assuage that concern? Um, well... This is what my ther my therapist said this. And things he said that we think about things from the back to the front, meaning um, that we think about you know uh, I'll do it when I'm ready, that type of thing. When you know you don't feel ready until you actually do something. Hmm. Um, so it's the same thing with avoidance. We end up and what you're talking about is we end up eliciting the reaction we're trying to avoid, which is usually one of two things: either we lose ourselves or we lose our partner. I don't know if that was like EFT. I, I hate all these acronyms, but it was some kind of therapy, something that you know explained. I think it was EFT couples work in terms of there's always two fears, which is you know, obviously more, but I like this, that it, it, the fear is either of losing the other person or losing ourselves. Um, so that's emotionally focused therapy. Yes. And so I think we often think about things um, in terms of, um, in order to take action or to, we have to feel ready, we have to feel ready to do it. Um, and so as I was saying, it's, it's usually the other way around. So from, you know, from the front to the back would be, I'll do X, Y, Z, and then after I'll feel ready. Um, and it's rare that we feel comfortable doing something we've never done, especially if we're talking about something that's relational and where there's a risk of potentially losing our partner. Um, you know, 
it's going to feel uncomfortable. Just definitionally, it's going to be painful even. You might even have a conflict. Um, so, you know, I think we first have to think about the goal is not to always have some kind of perfection and stability, um, is that sometimes conflict is necessary. And I think that's why a lot of people do avoid relationally is because, as you were saying at the beginning today, is that not everybody grew up in a place where conflict was allowed, um, uh, doable, healthy, safe, etc. Um, so, um, so, yeah, I mean, so I think the first thing is to recognize that it may not feel good. And that doesn't have to be the qualifier criteria um, of expressing yourself or doing something. I was having this conversation with a couple I was seeing this morning. They were talking about sex and body esteem, et cetera. I don't feel ready to have sex because I don't feel good about my body. And this is a similar situation. Not always, but similar in terms of, you know, sex often makes us feel good about our bodies instead of we have to feel good about our bodies before we have sex. Um, and again, not always, that's not always the case. Don't want to universalize anything. Um, but it's just another example of the way in which we kind of learn to think about protecting ourselves and avoiding something before we actually pursue pursue something that we want. So, you know, I think the, the challenge is, is that's the, what we have to unlearn and then relearn or unlearn and then learn something different. That being that if I'm going to push through this, it's going to be uncomfortable. I may have to tolerate pain. I may have to tolerate anxiety, but I'm already tolerating it anyway. Um, and so the avoidance actually is going to end up eliciting what it is that I'm trying to avoid. That is losing my partner because you feel so alone and isolated because you're not sharing yourself um, or losing yourself because you're defining yourself based on whatever it is that you want that you're not getting and not allowing yourself to feel empowered by expressing the desire, need, whatever. So um, I'm losing my train of thought here. No, so I like that. You're, you're avoiding something like conflict or engaging in a conversation because you think it's good for the relationship. Yes. But in the end, it costs you the relationship yeah. or it costs you fulfillment in mm -hmm. the relationship because, of course, staying together is not the measure of a healthy relationship. Just being together mm -hmm. is not an accomplishment, right? You want to feel good. You mm -hmm. want to feel fulfilled. That doesn't mean you always feel good, right? We, we do have to do things that feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I like all of this formula. I like the front to back thinking. It makes me think a little bit about in the sexual context of sexual desire, people are like, well, how do I get in the mood for sex? Well, oftentimes you have to get yourself aroused first, right? right? You don't you experience do desire naturally, spontaneously. No. Sometimes you got to reach down and touch yourself. You got to take your mind to think about Idris Alba. You got to take <laughs> your, your mind, something. you have to watch porn, you have to read, you have to do something to get physically aroused. Totally before the subjective desire follows. And that mm -hmm. linear expectation of I will feel sexual desire if I'm in a happy, healthy relationship and I'm attracted to my partner is really unrealistic, right? Just being attracted to your partner and having a nice relationship doesn't necessarily lead to sexual desire spontaneously. You mm -hmm. have to cultivate that responsive desire. And so that front to back thinking is, is really, a, I think, an interesting concept for emotional literacy and expression for mm -hmm. engaging in conversations and also for sex itself. Now, I have to let you go, but before you go, I wanted to talk really quickly about relationship goals because mm -hmm. you're really active on Instagram. You have a really great profile. I learn a lot from you. Uh, again, check it out at Your Diagnonsense. And you've talked about how relationship goals can ruin relationships and mm -hmm. not having goals in relationships, but the hashtag mm -hmm. of perfection and pressure. And you're a therapist and even you struggle with this. Mm -hmm. The pressure to have these perfect, shiny mm. relationships. What toll is this taking on real life relationships? Yeah, um, I think I might, I might post about that later today. I don't know. It's something similar. Um, I think when it comes to relationships, ourselves, emotions, the world, everything, like everything has become so intellectual and hyper analytical and so political. It's like 
which is, you know, yes, the intellectual and the political and all that shit shapes our personal lives, but um, the relationships are just definitionally fundamentally uh, about the sharing of affect, so emotion. Um, not intellectual, not hyper-analytical. Again, not saying don't ever be analytical or have relationship goals. No, do that. But I think it's just as important to know when to shut that off and to just be in your body and to connect and to have fun with your partner and not have to create resolution to every single conflict that comes up um, and to be able to tolerate some of the disconnection that comes up because it will. Um, But so much on social media and and, and a lot of media just in general, um, our general cultural understanding of relationships is so binary in terms of it's either good or it's bad. There's either a red flag or it's a good relationship or it's a toxic person or they're narcissistic or something or blah, 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 this analytical shit. Um, And as a therapist, you know, that's very important to me, being able to uh, be analytical about myself, relationships, the world, etc. But what I've learned is that it's also just as, if not more important, to be able to shut that stuff off um, and to develop your own set of values about what a relationship means to you and what love means to you and what fucking means to you uh, and what your body means to you, etc., etc., etc. Because I think the more we internalize what our culture tells us we should be experiencing in our relationships, the further and further we, we get from developing our own self-definition And it also causes, I think, a lot of shame for people, especially in relationships. So, you know, I think take what you see and read with a grain of salt, um, but make your own relationship goals. Don't don't have somebody tell you what you should experience in your relationships. Um, Like I was talking again with this couple, they they wanted to... They said they wanted to make out more. I was like, was that what you want? She was like, no, actually, that's not what I want. Um, You know, it's just like, don't assume anything and don't think that any sort of value that you internalize from Instagram or social media or your friends is the way that you should be doing relationships. Or experts even. Yeah, or me, or you. You know, you decide. And I think that that's, you know, the most important part um, when it comes to avoidance or relationships or whatever is that, you know, it's a really, it's a chance for you to empower yourself and to get the information you need. um, And then for you to define yourself, your relationship based on whatever is congruent with your desires, sexual or none. So it's not a binary of this is good, this is bad. Mm. It's more about does this work for me? Does this feel good for me? Does it feel good for my partner? And you've talked about this before that oftentimes, you know, we see these these memes around relationships Mm. like this is a red flag or this is what a fulfilling relationship looks like. Or if if your partner really loves you, they'll accept everything about you. Or you deserve to be treated like X, Y, Z. It's like, oh, my God. Right. And maybe you don't even want to be treated that way. Maybe you find other ways that, you know, are fulfilling for you. And the, the notion that your partner will accept everything about you. Guess what? There are things about me that actually shouldn't have been accepted. Mm. And I'm glad that the people right. in my life, not just my intimate partner, but friends will call me out yeah. and help me. And not in a mean way, right? Not in a, and maybe I shouldn't even say that, but in a way that's really helpful mm. to me, right? Sometimes I say, say things and my friends are like, yeah, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I need that. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't have to accept every single no. thing about me now at the core. I, you know, I, I don't know if I could be with someone who's like, oh, well, you know, you talk about sex for a living. That's dirty. Of course uh, not. That's a big part of what I be interesting do. if you were. Right? Can you imagine? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so lucky because I'm I re- like I said, I have so much support mm. uh, and people always ask, like, how do you do this? How do you travel from day to day? And I was just asking you that. Yeah, uh, it's because <laughs> I have so much support. And I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I get home. And my mom will sometimes have come over and filled up my fridge with groceries. Because oh if you're, so sweet. she's just the best. If you're only home 48 hours, you don't have time to, you no. know, two hours to the grocery store. Mm. Uh, or my neighbors sometimes oh my will drop dinner. That's so sweet. In my fridge, and you know, it's reciprocal. We're like, I'll drop them off green smoothies, which is what I make. Or you know, oh. if, if the, their kids borrow my dresses and That's stuff so like nice. that. We, I have such a really nice community around me. I have a couple of friends right now. 
uh, I feel really good about the friendships in my life. And I don't think I could have said that for most of mm. my life. So I'm learning. That's great. Like, I'm really working on friendships. I don't know that I'm always a great friend, partly because I'm in and out. You know, you drop into the city for 24 to 48 hours and at least 24 of it has to be decompressing, sitting on my blue couch, not mm. talking to anyone. I've got lucky. I'm really lucky who I have friends who like accept that about me and um, aren't resentful of me because I know that I have like they have nice lives too but I know that my life is exciting I know mm -hmm. that it's glamorous um, and they know that I work hard and that that matters to me maybe that's you know rooted in capitalism but I don't like the feeling of you know folks of course think that I'm just uh, what do you call it jet setting and I'm like no jet setters carry a hat box and do this for fun and, and not that it isn't fun but it's work you're and working I, I love yeah. it I love yeah. it but yeah I'm just I have a lot of support and I I think I'm just a little bit lucky that I built that. I don't know mm -hmm. that it was purposeful, but I also will take some credit because I think I treat people nicely, right? Like mm -hmm. I think that I try and give as well. I don't well. think it was just an accident, Jess. Well, it partly <laughs> is. You know, there's a little bit of so. luck. There's a little I mean, bit it's of also luck. like your entire personhood and like interactual style and, you know, who you are, I would imagine, plays a role in the development of a relationship and community. Yeah, yeah. And and a little luck, right? Like mm. I just have really nice neighbors. Yeah. Right? I moved into a neighborhood that I never want to move from. That's How great. lucky am I in a, in a huge city mm -hmm. to be living in this little tiny community and a very diverse community, which is like such a big thing for me. There mm. are more people like me, not just, you know, one type of person. Mm -hmm. So that's nice. Um, I think that I've talked about myself in this session. I'll call, I'll call it a session <laughs> more than more than uh, usual. Um, and I, I really appreciate I appreciate your time and your energy and your perspective. I love your formula of recognizing a behavior, relating it to your life story, asking yourself some of those questions you mentioned about, you know, your childhood or your memories or your experiences mm -hmm. or peak experiences or low experiences, um, really getting at, you know, the fear, right? What are we a little bit afraid of? And I love the front to back thinking, what's the outcome I'm looking for rather than trying to figure out what the strategies are first. And we walk kind of backwards from mm -hmm. there. So I hope people will give that a try. I certainly know people will follow you. You are Diagnonsense. You have a private practice in New York City. So we'll make sure we share those links. And uh, do you do anything online? Do you do online coaching or counseling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, have, I do remote sessions. Amazing. So folks will be looking out for that as well. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to meet you. This conversation was fun. You are lovely. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Desire Resorts for your ongoing support of this podcast. Much appreciated, folks, wherever you're at. Have a great one. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Improve your life.